What's working on purpose anyway? Each week we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest potential. Business can be such a force for good in the world, elevating humanity. In our program, we provide guidance and inspiration to help usher in this world we all want, working on purpose. Now, here is your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. The topics and opinions expressed in the following show are solely those of the hosts and their guests and not those of W4CY Radio, its employees, or affiliates. We make no recommendations or endorsements for radio show programs, services, or products mentioned on air or on our web. No liability, explicit or implied, shall be extended to W4CY Radio or its employees or affiliates. Any questions or comments should be directed to those show hosts. Thank you for choosing W4CY Radio. What's working on purpose anyway? Each week, we ponder the answer to this question. People ache for meaning and purpose at work, to contribute their talents passionately, and know their lives really matter. They crave being part of an organization that inspires them and helps them grow into realizing their highest... Welcome back to the Working on Purpose program. Thanks for tuning in again this week. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, joining you live from Dallas, which is home base for me. By way of introduction, I'm a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. I'm an organizational logotherapist, inspirational speaker, social scientist, and author. You can learn more about me and the work we can do together at EliseCortez.com and Gusto-Now.com. Let me thank my partner and sponsor, Work Proud. We are a perfect collaboration. Everyone wants to know they matter and that the work they do is meaningful and appreciated. Work Proud is a mobile platform built to encourage employees to share stories and recognize each other's contribution. Work Proud empowers HR and business leaders to create company cultures where all employees are inspired to feel proud of their work and proud of their company. You can learn more about them at WorkProud.com. With us today is Matt Gerber, a connector and innovator. Born in a small town in Eastern Oregon, Matt is now a corporate social responsibility and environmental and social governance strategist with firsthand experiences in more than 75 countries. We'll be talking about his personal experiences and philosophy that have shaped his journey and work, corporate social responsibility and ESG investing, and his new education idea he has. He joins us today from Dallas, Texas, where it's a gorgeous day. Matt, welcome to Working on Purpose. Dr. Cortez, thank you so much for having me. I am really, really excited to be here. I'm very honored to have been invited. Oh, my gosh. Me too. I'm so glad that our paths crossed. And I think it was this wonderful thing called social media. And here we are. We are together having the kind of conversation that I I find yummy. So, And we're both from Oregon, and we both love traveling. We have that in common. We figured that out right away. But I think, well, I'm not sure of how many countries I've been to, but you were initiated to travel, I, I find quite interesting, through Rotary. I wasn't. Mine was a different experience. And you have been part of Rotary for, I think, if I count right, 24 years. And as I said in the introduction, 75 countries and counting. Yeah, that's exactly right. You and I actually had our origin story start in a very similar, quiet part of uh, North Oregon. Very small towns where, honestly, not a lot of people that we grew up with ever had the opportunity or the vision to go out and see the world. And for me, that that uh, bridge to the rest of the world came through Rotary. I was an exchange student when I was 16, uh, thanks to a neighbor down the street who recommended me. And since then, the, the world has just been an, uh, an unending place to explore and, and serve and live. Mm. So as we were saying before we got on air, that to me speaks to two things that I always like to teach back as I do these radio programs. As one, the, the power 
powerful notion of association. And then also knowing when to opt into something. <laughs> to me, that's saying yes to Rotary on both counts. So, but, but when you travel, one of the things I find really interesting about you, Matt, is you don't just go and consume the experience. You don't just show up and be a sightseer and such. You meaningfully, through your service, interact with the country you're visiting. And I love that you visit orphanages, among other things. Um, and you've spoken about bringing supplies to them and other things. So I want to start by just, if you would share a little bit about that whole notion. Where did the idea even come from to go and visit orphanages when you're traveling? And how does that work? You know, it, it came from my upbringing in Eastern Oregon, whether it was my grandmother delivering food bank meals to people that were shut-ins or my parents volunteering in the 4-H, the fire department, the church. Uh, service was just part of my DNA. So it made sense that I would find the greatest fulfillment traveling uh, by bringing service into that as well. And when you realize that you're you're flying overseas and they, they give you all these allocations of checked luggage, uh, I don't need it. I don't have that many clothes. So I just got the idea from, from actually in college volunteering at orphanages overseas that even as an adult, I would do the same thing. So I just, wherever I'm going, whether it's Romania, Belize, uh, Rwanda, I will reach out to an orphanage uh, usually an orphanage, and uh, and just ask them what they need because there's stuff that we can only get here in the United States, and that is what I will pack my check luggage or yeah my, my both my pieces of check luggage with. That is so brilliant. I'm going to steal that idea. I'm going to so fold that yeah. into my travels. I love it. I think that's just brilliant. It's so easy, so easy, and that I never thought about it. I just can't believe that. Um, it is the and and I can tell you without uh, exception. Every trip I've ever been on, personal, professional, uh, the day that I spent with the orphanage or multiple days are always the most fulfilling. Well, I wanted to ask about that. Obviously, what they get is supplies and they get somebody from the outside world who wants to come and see them. What do you get? Um, I get a, uh, uh, you know how people have, you know, they think about New Year's resolutions as, as this, this moment every 12 months where they can kind of recenter themselves and think about where they've been and where they're going. Every time I go and volunteer somewhere, that is the experience that I have. It could be the middle of the year. It could be up the street. It could be back home in Oregon for the wildfires last fall or, or somewhere um, in natural disaster. But those moments are the time where I find I revisit who I am most proud of being and I get the most clarity through mm. service. Mm. You know what I love about it, Matt, as, a, as an identity researcher and a meeting and work researcher is what, how I see this, these interactions that you're having when you travel across the world is you're, you're, you're folding them into your person. There's like a circular motion where those experiences are being folded into you. And of course, you're impacting their development, how they see the world. And it's this beautiful synergistic interaction that I just, I think it's, it's dynamic, it's beautiful. And of course, from my vantage point, I call that inspiration, right? You're breathing life into each other into each other and also there's a responsibility and a burden that i take very seriously when i come home and because i've got to experience and be a part of these people's stories firsthand whether it's children at an orphanage or their families living by they can't take care of them or people whose communities have been decimated by natural disaster my responsibility when i come back is to be a storyteller and to to use my platform to raise awareness of the lives of these other people so that's that's how it actually, the circle gets even bigger, not just mm -hmm. me and people that I'm there to help, but this broader community of my, my community here in, in the United States and here in Dallas, uh, whatever communities I'm a part of to share that awareness. 
Well, and to that end, you said something to me when we spoke on the phone to prepare for this conversation or to schedule this conversation that I forgot about. And it goes back to you being a storyteller. You said that you'd gone to India for disaster relief after the massive 2004 Asian tsunami and then went to Indonesia after the 2018 earthquake and tsunami. I don't want to say that I had forgotten about those things, but they really weren't top of my mind. And so for you being a storyteller, to come back and remind us of these things that have happened and what it looks like on the other side when they do is, is incredibly important. And let me just say, it is, uh, it's not lost to me that in those moments, I'm going to the place on earth that is the last place anybody wants to go. In 2018, when the massive earthquake hit uh, Palu, Indonesia, the city was decimated. Uh, more than a million people displaced. Um, the tsunami came in three waves, and it caused this, uh, this terrible phenomenon called liquefaction, where the earth actually shakes and swallows homes, cars, and people whole. And so the, uh, the, the experience of being there is, um, it's, it's like going to a war zone, really. And, uh, and you can't leave something like that changed. And, um, I'm very fortunate to have a lot of outlets and abilities to go serve in places like that. I think because my father was a combat medic for 40 years, I had a predisposition towards, uh, or a, a tolerance and, a, and an interest in being able to handle emergency situations. You are such a, comprehensive person to me, Matt. Um, you have had such this really, really deep background and done all of this really deep service work. You've gone to so many countries and been of service there. And you yourself have struggled with suicide. Yeah. And and I it's so amazing to me. Now here you are giving back to the world in service of yourself. So what's your journey been like? Mm-hmm. So I, uh, you know, the, the thing about suicide is we have so much uh, stigma around it. It's very hard for people to talk about. We, we look at the statistics, 48,000 people a year commit suicide. But what we miss out on is the bigger circle, which in the United States, more than 1.2 million people consider suicide and possibly as many as 12 million people have thoughts of suicide. So the 12 million people have thoughts of suicide. 1.2 actually make a plan. And then you have 48,000 or more who, who actually go through with it. And so we always think it's somebody else. We, I worked with veterans for a while. You know, we hear the statistics 23 a day. What we don't hear about is that first line responders, police, and firemen are four times likely, at least twice yeah. as likely, sometimes four times more likely to die of suicide than in the line of work. And, and this, this speaks to um, really the foundation of what suicide is, comes out of. Suicide is this this intersection of shame and fear and those things can only take root and bring you to that point if they have silence secrecy and judgment and these are things that that around mental health in the united states we offer in way too ample supply so for me i got to that point because there was silence secrecy and judgment around the fact that my life seemed so wonderful on the outside and yet there was this disconnect about what was going on internally um, connected from my family, friends. I just moved across the country, just stepped out of my career to follow uh, a spouse. And, um, it took me to that point. I, I called, a, I realized I was having, uh, making a plan for my suicide and I was proactive enough to call a suicide hotline. And I spent the floor, I spent the night on the floor of a crisis shelter that was full in, uh, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And when you get up off the floor of a crisis shelter where you spend a sleepless night thinking about how you got there, your life is very different and you want to learn, you want to apply all those lessons that you learned. And uh, I was able to continue that into my work with veterans. 
Hmm. Yeah. So I, I didn't actually think to ask you that, but I know you, let's talk about that really quick because what you did with veterans is just so, so important. Is that the fit ops that you did? Fit ops foundation. So actually the morning I got off the floor of the crisis shelter in Pittsburgh was the day that I pitched the idea for fit ops foundation to the CEO of the supplement company who would, who would fund it and, uh, and sponsor me to create this vision for him. And uh, it was it was uh, it, it came out of a very personal understanding of trauma, a family background in the military, and having friends watch friends uh, struggle with addiction. So these these veterans, even though I've never served in the armed forces myself, these veterans felt like family because I could see familiar faces in each one of them. Mm-hmm. So, listeners and viewers, what I want to emphasize here, and what Matt is sharing, is you know, you can we can all take what we've gone through in life, those things that like knock us to our knees. That in this case, we almost lost Matt. Um, we can take those things, those experiences, and what we've learned from them, and share what what we've learned from them to help others to bring other people, which is exactly what Matt did. And that is that's one way for you to find your purpose and to serve from it. Um, and I I think what you did in that program, if I remember right, is you helped um, one you listened to those vets, and then you taught them about physical fitness and training, and then they became trainers. Is that right? Absolutely. So the um the whole premise of the program was a combination leadership and vocational training program. That was like the surface, the veneer, but underneath was actually like the essential, like in a, in a sense, like group rehab, yeah. people sharing their stories, people finding purpose, everything that they lost when they left the military, a sense of community, a sense of purpose and a sense of structure. We gave it back to them. Our program was uh, full-time three weeks. And when they emerged, I had one guy that came uh, 6 a.m. in the morning from a drug rehab program directly into our fit ops program and when he left he had a job as a, an elite personal trainer at equinox oh, so great uh, so so the other thing listeners and viewers i want to emphasize is that if you are feeling bad in life if something is dragging on you you know one of the best things you can do is help other by some help somebody else go find someone to help and the reason why that works is because from a logotherapeutic vantage point you're going into self-transcendence so you're moving away from focusing on what is happening for you and you're help, thinking about how can you can help somebody else and that giving is so so good for you and matt i mean your whole story that's everything that you do right and no wonder you can touch so many lives because you're you're literally reaching across the globe to do that. And I, you know, the, the most extreme example is is contemplating suicide and then what happens with FitOps. But as I've as our society pushes us to constantly reinvent ourselves, I found myself going through this kind of like mini rediscovery again and again and again. And without a doubt, the most consistent part of it is is service. That's how I've been able to land on my feet. This is, this is the reason why I've been involved with Rotary for 24 years, because it provides this continuity of outlets for service and inspiration for service, even if I'm not volunteering through them directly. Mm-hmm. And then to sort of round out your philosophy, because this first segment was really kind of talking about who you are and where your philosophy and your experiences came from. How did you find conscious capitalism? We're both conscious capitalists. How did you find it? And how does that fit into your whole story and philosophy? Um, you know, I, uh, I, I hate bringing it back to Eastern Oregon. Uh, <laughs> We're both from Eastern Oregon, by the way. Yeah, you know, but it, for me, conscious capitalism started by uh, growing up in a family where we didn't have any money. So if I wanted money for myself, for shoes, for, for clothes, whatever, I had to earn it myself. And so we raised animals in 4-H. And the, so I understood capitalism from a sales standpoint, but I also understood it as a, as a 
this we'll touch on this later with the ESG, but you have to be connected to the to the land. You have to be connected to the animals. There's a sense of stewardship. You have to be connected to the needs of the people that you're serving your quote unquote customers and the um, uh, the the community. Sorry, and uh, and so conscious capitalism for me is all of those components. Understanding yourself, what value you can add, uh, the community, all of that, and um, and 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 realizing a, a real sense of, of self-determination. I think conscious capitalism is, is embracing one's self-determination uh, and understanding that we're all part of the same community, whether it's the, the state, the country, the world. We're all, we all have an obligation and an opportunity to be good members of that community. Mm-hmm. I am so aligned with it as well. And I do touch about it, touch on it in my book as well, because I just think it's such an important way to live, just a, a way of life. So on that note, we'll take our first break. I'm Dr. Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Matt Gerber. He's a corporate social responsibility and environmental social governance strategist. We've been talking about his early life experiences and all the things that have folded into his philosophy of how he lives and does his work. After the break, we're going to talk about corporate social responsibility. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. On a side note, I wanted to let you know, we've been looking here at Elise Cortez and Associates on ways to help companies support their employees handle the anxiety, stress, depression, and feeling disconnected while also helping to lift and inspire them with ongoing professional development. So we're now offering a well-being webinar learning series called Grab Your Gusto, Vital Well-Being from the Inside Out. You can learn more about it at EliseCortez.com or email me at Elise at EliseCortez.com. If you're just joining the program, my guest is Matt Gerber. He's a corporate social responsibility and environmental social governance strategist with first-hand experience in more than 75 countries. He joins you today from Dallas, Texas. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. So for this segment, we wanted to peel back and really get really snugly with this notion of corporate social responsibility and ESG investing. For a lot of our listeners, those may be brand new terms, right? And especially ESG investing. Um, so I think it's interesting for you already that here you are. I mean, this, I can't even imagine what you've experienced, Matt. I mean, you're traveling to 75 different countries. Your career has been dedicated to creating and mobilizing diverse teams around big missions. Oh, my gosh, that just sounds so yummy. Kind of like being in the Army but on a different team. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what does this whole, how does corporate social responsibility and ESG investing fit into your experiences and what are you trying to accomplish through them? Yeah. So when I, um, thanks for the question. Uh, the CSR field, when I first started doing it 20 years ago, it didn't even really have a title at that point. It was like <laughs> Um, so CSR, corporate social responsibility, the best way to describe it is if a company or an organization was a person, 
what kind of citizen of the community would they be? How well would they take care of their people, their neighbors? How much conscious capitalism, ethical business would you see in their work? Um, CSR at its core solves problems. Internally, it, it can solve for employee engagement and motivation, culture, and externally, it can enhance reputation. It can uh, drive an awareness of, of the, the values that the company has internally and externally. So that was CSR, and CSR has really, it was, it was about intention, and it was about the intention of, of citizenship as, a, as an organization. And then you had the introduction of, of ESG, so uh, Environmental Social Governance. So in that acronym, imagine that just the middle letter, S, social, that kind of represents what CSR is. But ESG as a whole is more evolved than CSR, and the best way to describe it is that it's more quantifiable. Like ESG, the, the market is really the stakeholders, whether it's shareholders or uh, clients or the owners, anybody else in the, that's connected with the organization, they want to see measurable results specific to um, environmental sustainability, specifics and social impact. And also you can have specifics in government. So how diverse and independent is a company's board of directors? These are all parts of the equation of ESG. I don't think anybody, maybe that's not, I'm not going to say anybody, but I'm going to guess that several of the listeners would have never thought that ESG investing was a way to solve problems. And so I really appreciate how you articulated that. I do see it that way as well. Uh, and it, correct me if I'm wrong, I also see it as a way to do it in a way where you're literally lifting your sights to be able to serve on a higher level. Uh, right? I mean, and why not? I mean, why not do that? I mean, if you're able to be able to see from a higher mountaintop, why wouldn't you choose to do that? Right? That's Absolutely. And the danger of it being a buzz term, uh, like you just mentioned, like in, a, in this, the, the most full expression of ESG is this raising your head and, and looking from the mountaintop. The most basic and inauthentic version of, of CSR or ESG is a company that just wants to box check it to say that we have a program like this. And I see, I read ESG uh, annual reports like People watch Netflix. I just, I'm constantly devouring them. And I can tell immediately the ones that do this just for PR and the ones that are doing this authentically to make an impact for their employees, their customers, their stakeholders of all kinds. Mm -hmm. And you can feel the difference really, really fast. Yes. Yes. I bet you can. Well, and one of the things that grabbed me about our first conversation is we were talking about how this notion of corporate philanthropy and corporate social responsibility actually can help inspire employees because you can you, they start to see that they're part of something much bigger than themselves they're working toward a much bigger mission and of course my work and um engagement meaning and work and, and of course being a, a logotherapist i know the importance of inspiration as a really really important motivational force so can you speak a little bit more toward how csr in esg investing gets to that Absolutely. So, the, um, the, the, it actually impacts the bottom line. People think that these programs are all about like donating money or we support recycling or whatever it is. But what you just mentioned about how people show up at work and the sort of engagement and fulfillment that they find, these are directly related to that because uh, younger, younger workers are incredibly sophisticated in how they perceive whether or not a CSR ESG program emission is authentic. So this doesn't just attract employee engagement and retention, but it also uh, impacts the, the quality of people that you attract. So, so let's say you're a 29-year-old uh, woman who's a computer programmer. 
you could literally write your ticket anywhere and there's an increasing amount of these IT companies. And I promise you, one of the things that's on her radar, at least most of these people that I, I work with, is they want to know that there's an authentic um, application and ethos around ESG and CSR. So you're, you're looking at not just at enhancing the culture and, and um, reinforcing it by the people that you attract, but you're also going to retain people who love their job so much. It's like, my goal is that you would need a SEAL extraction team to pull somebody away <laughs> from their job because they love it so much. And that engagement can come from CSR and ESG mm. uh, without a doubt. And, and the way it does that is because it lets people show up to work knowing that they're a whole person, even if we're working remotely, and let them know that, that just by being a part of the company, that they're making a positive impact on the world in all of those areas. And there's a, there's a, a really feel-good moment about that. You don't need to have the most competitive salary in your industry if you work for a company that really has that nailed down and practices it. Mm. I can't help it, Matt. I'm a geek, and you know that about me. I got to extend this into the research realm. I'm a social scientist, but I, when I was investigating meaning and work and identity, the first thing I wanted to understand was how people how people connected themselves with their work. And what I came to understand immediately, this was even when I was doing my PhD, and then I augmented it, is we can experience work so that uh, we, it, it actually conflicts with our identity. We can experience it so that it expresses our identity. It fits or resonates with our identity. It's inseparable or it actually expands and informs our identity. Okay, so those are the ways that I found work and identity work together. So when we layer in corporate social responsibility and ESG investing, what we get is we get uh, the work informing or aggrandizing our sense of identity. And that's why it's so motivating. That's why it's so powerful. You are literally making each and every individual person bigger than they could be on their own. And how amazing is that? What a gift. Absolutely. And, and if you're amplifying a person, oh my goodness, and that, that ripple effect goes across your company, why wouldn't you want to do that? And, and how many opportunities in life do we have to be a part of something bigger than ourselves? Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to find that if people, you know, maybe 50 years ago, they might have found that sort of identity and bigger purpose in a faith community. Uh, rotary clubs used to be much bigger than they are now for that exact reason. So why, why can't we find that at work? Why shouldn't we find that at work? That sense of me, my coworkers, my my the, the whole company that I'm a part of, we're we're a part of something bigger than if I was just like sitting running a business all by myself and thinking to myself, I gotta put put food on the table, oh, and I wanna do good in the world. These things aren't mutually exclusive and there's a an economy of scale by being a part of an organization of any size where people share that mindset. Yeah. And to that end, I think now's a really good time. So this show is really a thought a thought leadership platform. But in order for that to stick, it helps for us to share some examples so people don't think this is just conceptual stuff that doesn't actually exist in the real world. So can you give us an example of how maybe you've developed a, a CSR initiative or done something inside an organization with ESG or something so people can understand how this actually works and shows up? Sure. So a very, a very quick example. I uh, recently, one of my clients was a UK based IT services firm with uh, employees all around the world. And when I was brought in to create a unified CSR program, corporate social responsibility program, the, the assumption was, is that, you know, some offices were doing some stuff and some weren't. And we just, we needed to create a template and it needed to be top down. And that's not my, my philosophy at all because we need employees to feel a sense of ownership and empowerment from the bottom up. 
So you need company-supported but employee-led CSR programs. So I got on a plane and I went and I did focus groups in Ukraine and Pakistan and uh, southern Spain. And what I discovered when I started listening to these people, these offices, these, these individuals already had CSR programs that they were doing at the local level. And so I would start going out in the field with these people. We'd have the focus group and they would take me out to see the children's cancer charity in Kiev, or they would take me to the inner city slum schools and orphanages in Islamabad, or they would take me to this massive food bank that they support in Southern Spain. And so what I discovered was I didn't need to create a program. All I needed to do was create an opportunity where these, all these disparate uh, offices and cultural backgrounds, they could come together and they could share their stories and we could create some guardrails around it so that it has structure and metrics so that we can measure the engagement. That was the easy part. But the fun part was getting to, for all of them to share and tell their stories. And the corporate leaders were amazed because they didn't realize that the company was already very sophisticated with CSR. And by far, out of all the global offices, Pakistan was the most. They had tree planting. They had orphanages mm -hmm. at these slum schools that they completely funded. And the uh, the Pakistani employees in Islamabad, they were the most engaged with their community. And so it was very fun to celebrate them as a leader in the company because nobody had any visibility into it. So that's what it looks like when it's real is I always start with what's going on there first. And how do we grow and encourage that instead of having some sort of, uh, you know, edict come down from the C-suite saying, you guys need to do this. You need to donate this sort of money um, because you don't get engagement from that and you don't get people feeling proud of the impact in their community because they didn't come up with it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it was my idea and I want to go see it and see it working in the community. Of course, I'm going to work a lot harder at that. Absolutely. You have a, an interesting term that you that you use. It's not used very often, but this notion of being a, a corporate entrepreneur. And I want to know how that gets expressed through the work you do in corporate philanthropy. So when I graduated from college, all I wanted to do was work for a nonprofit and I would take my resume around and I would say, I will take out your trash for free if you'll let me work here or volunteer. And I got no calls back. Uh, so it's amazing. Is that sad? Uh, but I ended, was doing some work in Nicaragua. Long story short, this evolved into a, a 501c3 of my first humanitarian aid organization. So I, uh, from there, I, I built experience as, a, as an entrepreneur, like creating business plans, doing all the fundraising, all the people, uh, technology resources that you have to do that. And it's, it's really exciting, but it's also extremely exhausting. What I had an opportunity to do uh, with FitOps Foundation, when I was hired by the CEO who had this uh, national um, sports and nutritional supplement program, which was very, very, very successful, I had the opportunity to create from within the company a new entity. So I created a corporate foundation with all the support and resources of a big company. So I got to be an entrepreneur inside the company. So that's that's what I refer to when I refer to entrepreneur is the ability to create with all the established and existing resources. And what's really interesting is it's a wonderful way to engage different parts of the company because it requires cross-cultural support. You don't start off with a team of people when you're starting a brand new program. So I've got to like get I have to influence through inspiration not through authority. So I need the CFO on my side. I need legal. I need like employees at different levels and different geographies. And it was very fun. And we created FitOps Foundation from scratch to uh, to help veterans. We did this, this three-week program at a time. And in the first 18 months, we graduated nearly 200 veterans into new careers as personal trainers, 
all because we were able to run fast because of the entrepreneurship, because we created something from, from within the structure of a thriving, successful uh, business. Listeners and viewers, if that it doesn't turn you on, I don't know how we can help you, right? If you take somebody else's money and resources because you're so passionate with something that you want to do in the world, you make it happen. Oh my gosh, talk about making a difference with your one precious life. Our last break, I'm Elise Cortez, your host. We've been on the air with Matt Gerber. He's a corporate social responsibility and environmental social governance strategist. We've been talking a bit about corporate social responsibility and ESG investing. After the break, we're going to get into this really novel idea he has about education. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Dr. Elise Cortez is a management consultant specializing in meaning and purpose. An inspirational speaker and author, she helps companies visioneer for greater purpose among stakeholders and develop purpose-inspired leadership and meaning-infused cultures that elevate fulfillment, performance, and commitment within the workforce. To learn more or to invite Elise to speak to your organization, please visit her at EliseCortez.com. Let's talk about how to get your employees working on purpose. This is Working on Purpose with Dr. Elise Cortez. To reach our program today or open a conversation with Elise, send an email to Elise, A-L-I-S-E, at EliseCortez.com. Now, back to Working on Purpose. Thanks for staying with us and welcome back to Working on Purpose. I wanted to let you know, if you don't know this, if you've heard me say this before, my book is out, my first full-length book. It's called Purpose Ignited, How Inspiring Leaders Ignite Passion and a Light Cause. It's on Amazon and various other places. I really wrote it to awaken passion and purpose in, in, in the readers and transform them into inspirational leaders that enliven the workplace and make it a place people want to come to and, and, and elevate business as well. So that's who it's for. Uh, if you're just joining us, my guest is Matt Gerber. He is a corporate social responsibility and environmental social governance strategist with first-gen experience in more than 75 countries. I'm your host, Dr. Elise Cortez. Okay, so Matt, this is a serious question for you as we get into this next topic. You have literally been all over the world. You are always up to something. And now here you are doing a doctorate program in global management with an emphasis in CSR. Why are you not busy enough as it is? Yeah, you, you would wonder the pandemic would be a good time to cross off a long time bucket list thing. I, when I, my parents will tell you that when I was in middle school, I would actually sign my name as Dr. Matthew H. Gerber. So I've, I've had this dream of getting my doctorate for a very long time. And this made sense for a number of reasons. One, the timing. Two, um, I want to, I, like you, I love research and I love, I love being on the cutting edge of new ideas and exchanging them with other people that are on the cutting edge. And so, from that standpoint, I, I knew that I wanted to do all the work that I'm passionate about, but I wanted to do it in an almost clinical setting, like in a very academic setting where I could actually measure the impact, which is the trend that we're going at. So that's one thing. And then I had a professor in college who said that the best decision he ever made was to get his doctorate because of the professional context and, and all the doors that it would open. So it was a no-brainer. I've been wanting to do this for more than 20 years. And I uh, just decided to do it now. And um, I'm, I'm so excited because I'm, I, I do this work already. And now I'm going to be able to, I believe, do it better with this uh, doctorate. Yeah, that's pretty much what happened to me, too. I, I really pursued a doctorate because that was my answer to my midlife crisis, early midlife crisis. So I didn't, you know, that was get a, get a PhD. I was surprised, though, when I got these three letters after my name, though. I didn't expect that. Um, but you do know that you can never get away from me, though, now, right? So um, that's... <laughs> 
<laughs> Absolutely. And you're here in Dallas. So let's just face it. I could be on your doorstep tomorrow. Um, you know, holding coffee. We're going to have a continuation of this conversation. It'll be awesome. Absolutely. Uh, well, um, here you are also, though, in the backyard. And I think we talked about this as well in our first conversation. You also mentor for high school students and absolutely love doing that. And I think there's some of the same students or at least the group that I've served at Woodrow Wilson. Uh, but why do you love working with those students? You know, I, I, it just started as one student at a time. And, um, you know, I have some, uh, uh, some basically family members in New Zealand. And during the pandemic, it was an opportunity for me to help coach them, uh, in their schooling because they were just bored sitting in front of the computer. And so it gave me an opportunity to interact with them, which was so wonderful. Uh, but you're right. The, the students at Woodrow Wilson, uh, for people that aren't familiar with Dallas, Woodrow is a, Wilson is a very diverse, um, community that where where there's a lot of people there are families that uh, are first generation Americans uh, are immigrant families um, and not a real high matriculation rate into higher education and so through my Rotary Club of Dallas we have a we call it the dream team and we go and we actually sign up for two and a half years of mentoring so from the middle of their sophomore year through graduation with the goal of we've identified students who are, are have college aspirations and how do we invest in them and set them up with the best personal, professional and academic success so they feel confident and supported going into that. And then I have, uh, so two in New Zealand, one in Dallas, and then I have a, an amazing kid in New York who's, uh, who's very different than the other ones. He has Ivy League aspirations and he's like, I'm never going to get in because everybody's going to Ivy League schools. What can I do where I can find my life purpose and passion? this summer as a 16 year old. And so we meet every week on Zoom and we talk about places in the world of volunteers, even with the pandemic. And I don't give him any answers. We just whiteboard, we create a space where he can discover that on his own. And it is all four kids are so different and I, I enjoy working with them. It, it fills, fills my heart. It's so fun. You are turning on their futures, Matt. That's what's going on there, is they probably couldn't see any of these possibilities without you being involved, and you're their spigot. Yeah, I hope so. If my impact is just really small, that's enough for me. I mean, think how many, you know, Dr. Cortez, think how many teachers that we had that were amazingly impactful and inspiring to us that have no idea what we went on to go do. And I have that kind of sense of surrender as I invest in these kids, try to bring them my best every week. And I have no idea what parts of it they're going to take. I have no idea how they'll apply it. Or maybe it's something I say today, they'll remember it 10 years down the road. No idea. But I feel a complete sense of peace. And I just know that the biggest thing I can do is show up for them every day. Yeah. And what a gift. Um, so when I look at you, Matt, I, I just see you as just a literally walking, beautiful sponge soaking in the world and learning and people and everything else. And one of the things I find fascinating that I really want to talk about that you've, you've, you've said you've identified a problem in, in an education and want to focus on teaching students to create value, not just get a job. Here, here. Say more about this. What is, where, how did you identify this and what are you seeing? Are you talking about this uh, kind of crazy educational program that I uh, was? Yes. Yes. Okay. So uh, during the start of the pandemic, we, we watched this amazing shift from, uh, from you know, we, we had this perception, let's say University of Phoenix, and we kind of looked down on fully online degrees as like, oh, it's for people that don't have the, you know, the structure in their lives to go attend brick and mortar classes or the opportunity. Now what we see is 
uh, University of Phoenix because they have been doing this for so long. They're now considered experts in online learning because they have all the processes and everything down. So we see this, this shift towards greater acceptance of online learning. And in parallel to that, there's these, uh, there's this whole industry around MOOCs, M-O-O-C, which is, um, massive open online courses. And so you've got like Harvard banding together with some schools and Stanford and you've got a, a number of schools that are offering tons and tons of free content and it's, uh, free coursework college level coursework. And sometimes it's a gateway for them to get you to buy a certificate for, for some sort of specialized training. Um, so all of that's wonderful in the, uh, for, for people in the United States, but, um, we have the ability and the opportunity to, to, uh, achieve higher education here in a way that other places in the world do not. And when you think about a billion people in the world who, uh, if they had the opportunity to even earn an associate's degree, this could transform uh, a woman who's a factory worker in Bangladesh from being on a sewing machine for 14 hours a day, uh, earning just barely enough for her family and to send back to her village. She could work in the office. She could have the skills to do something clerical. It would transform her life, transform her family. And so if all of these courses exist, and we're talking tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of free courses now, who's to say that if you were to... To, to draw a line around this group of courses that this is the equivalent of a, of a associate's degree or a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. And if these courses are free, why shouldn't the, the degree and the recognition be free? This is a wildly unpopular idea in the United States because of the commercialization and what an industry higher education is. This is the United States is not the market for this uh, because of how politicized it is. But in other countries where all they want is that piece of paper to say that they've attained, they've attained a certain level of education so that immediately, immediately they can go from a blue collar worker to a white collar worker and, and totally change their prospects. This is, these are the people that I, I, this this keeps me awake at night because I think about how powerful it could be to take these all these courses we've created for free and just give them the structure to be able to earn these degrees on their own. Like they don't they, all the these world class instructors are providing these classes for free. Let's create a path. Let's give them a, a, a an audit of you do these these twelve classes. You get a bachelor's in accounting. Well, I am all about lifting the world. So much of what I care about, Matt, and that I'm devoted, I've devoted myself to is just doing my part to raise the consciousness, the vibration, the energy, the connection of the world while I'm here on the planet. So I love the idea. And I really like the idea very much of reaching into places where they couldn't get there on their own. They, they couldn't have access to this. They don't know how to, how to even get access to something like that. So where would you start, do you think? So you start the same way that all the best programs do. You start by listening and learning at a local level. So you find who the right community partners we maybe it's Rotary, maybe it's uh, other NGOs. Um, but the, you, obviously, they need a basic amount of technological platform. But if you had these things which were smartphone compatible, I've spent a lot of time the last couple of years in Rwanda and Guatemala and a number of countries that have I've watched the technological leap from going from zero communication, no hardwired homes with any sort of wires, electricity, order of plumbing or telephone to people that are carrying around smartphones. So if you can make these courses available on smartphones, uh, you're providing an opportunity for higher education right there. So that's the, that's the first step. And then the second step is, um, how do you track it? 
how do you track their successful completion of these courses and how does that roll up into a degree? Um, in my, my work with Shelterbox, we talk and we track how many people are displaced in the world. And just a few years ago, it was 85 million. We're up to more than 100 million people in the world who are currently displaced, 75% of which are women and children. And this is because of conflict, natural disaster, climate change. And so how, do you, how does somebody who's displaced and has no home have the stability to, to earn a degree? And yeah. if you're from any number of, of, well, most of the countries in the world, let's say you and I, instead of growing up in Oregon, you and I grew up in Iraq. Well, if you and I were applying for grad schools and we needed to go back to our high school or our undergrad, we would physically have to go to Iraq, stand in a registrar line, wait for somebody to produce a piece of paper for us. And my idea is to eliminate that step entirely. And so in the same way that people buy, sell, trade, track bitcoins, the same technology can be applied now for digital artwork. It can also be applied for university degrees. So this idea of blockchain, where the record of their, their school record and also their university degree is something that permanently exists. And it doesn't matter if you're a Syrian refugee who's now immigrated to Turkey and then to Germany. We can track that you have completed these classes and you're working towards that degree. So that's the goal. That's the vision. And and uh that's my one thing that if, if, if I didn't worry about who gets credit, I, I tell this idea to everybody because I, I want somebody to take this idea and run with it. And if nobody does, I'm making those small steps all the time to find the right people and to mobilize around this mission. And it's that important. And I think that we could help a billion people transform their lives through free access to higher education. So what can listeners do to help? Um, that is a, a question I was not expecting and no one's ever asked me that because I've never had an opportunity to share in such a big platform. Um, while I'm thinking about that, let me just say that, that one of the biggest things, first of all, I want to say a big hello to all, all of your listeners around the globe and, uh, and commend them for taking this time to, uh, to, to listen to your show, Dr. Cortez. And I would say that, that my goal after every one of your, your guests and after me, is that nobody feels let off the hook. I don't want people to listen to my story of serving and taking taking suitcases to orphanages and say, oh, that's really nice for Matt, you know, because he, he travels all the time. And so that's great that he goes and helps. Or, you know, it's great that it's great that uh, Dr. Cortez meets with all these wonderful, inspiring people because, look, she's so smart. She's so charismatic. She's, 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 these are the people she hangs out with all every day. So how great that she gets to have those conversations. I don't want to let people out of the hook and say that all of these things I just mentioned are great for somebody else. Mm -hmm. Anybody can go and find those little opportunities for service. Anybody can go out and connect with people who they, who, who inspires them and can, and can grow their humanity, grow their connectedness, grow their awareness, whatever you want to fill it in. I want, I want people to see themselves in us and our story. And that's my biggest, that's my biggest uh, wish, even just, coming on here. So I don't have an answer to the question of what can people do to help with this mission of, uh, of the, the, the free online higher education, except no matter where you are, if uh, I can't be there to do focus groups and, and, and forget that it's called something so formal, just talk to people, talk to, talk to people, find who would be interested in having their life transformed or could be transformed uh, by free higher education. And the one last thing I want to say, I know we're limited on time is, if you watch advertisements for most colleges and universities, 
especially an unnamed Ivy League school. I won't say what they are, but they talk about how, you know, our school on your resume, even just a few classes, this is going to make you job ready, job ready, job ready, job ready, job ready. The purpose of the educational program I'm talking about is to make you creator ready. I don't need you to know how to put together a business plan or how to execute a marketing strategy like you would learn in an academic setting. I want you to learn how to ask the right questions. So when you are in uh, your neighborhood in Kigali, Rwanda, you know how to mobilize the other women and you know how to make sure that they have the skills. And suddenly you take a group of five women with sewing machines and you create it into an enterprise where you're able to generate income for your whole community. So it's entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship, but, uh, that's the point of the education. This isn't about making people job ready. There's most of these people, they won't have, some of them will not have the access to jobs. Uh, so if we can create uh, them, create inside them the inspiration, the confidence, the ability to create their own jobs, to create their own economic value, that's the magic. That's the secret. Uh, I'm completely in for that, Matt. Um, and we have run out of time. How can listeners and viewers find you? Uh, find me uh, mattgerber.io, so www.mattgerber.io, and that'll just take you directly to my LinkedIn page. It's really the only social media I use, which is by the way how Dr. Cortez and I met. LinkedIn suggested that we would be friends, and it was right. And and we were, and they were right. The algorithm was right. The algorithm was right. Listeners and viewers, thank you for joining us today. And Matt, thank you so much for sharing your heart and soul with us. Beautiful to catch. He told you where 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 you can find him. And thank you again to our sponsor, our sponsor, WorkProud, which helps companies build a platform where your workforce receives meaningful feedback and thanks for their work from people across your company. Last week, if you missed the live show, you can always catch a recorded podcast. We were on the air with authors Jane Firth and Andrew Zins talking about their book, Grit, Grace, and Gravitas, The Three Keys to Transforming Leadership, Presence, and Impact. It was a very meaty conversation and class act book and women to boot. Next week, we'll be on the air with Dr. Brad Wright, a sociologist and researcher, talking about his studies in applied purpose. See you there. Remember that work is at least a third of our life, so let's work on purpose. We hope you've enjoyed this week's program. Be sure to tune in to Working on Purpose, featuring your host, Dr. Elise Cortez, each week on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Together, we'll create a world where business operates conscientiously, leadership inspires impassioned performance, and employees are fulfilled in work that provides the meaning and purpose they crave. See you there. Let's work on purpose.